Well, good morning, Chapel family. Well, I invite you to take your Bible this morning and open to the book of Amos. The book of Amos, little book in the Old Testament. You go to the middle, hang a right. You go past Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and Proverbs and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and you get to the book of Hosea. Then you keep going, Joel and Amos. Amos chapter 7. A southern redneck rancher, fresh out of the backwoods, came to the big city in the north. Kind of sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it's not. It's the real life, true story of this prophet Amos, whom we're studying in this book. The man that God called out of the south to go speak to the northern kingdom of Israel around 750 B.C. Over the last few weeks, we've seen that far from being just an odd story of ancient history, the times of Amos sound remarkably familiar to us. And the message of Amos is strikingly relevant to us living in 21st century America. The nation of Israel at this time was enjoying peace and prosperity and international respect. But while they thought everything was wonderful, God sent this prophet Amos with a warning. Judgment was about to fall on Israel. God is about to wipe them out. God exposes that underneath the shiny veneer of this nation, there is a great ugly mess of evil. The people in Israel were so consumed with luxury and with comfort and with pleasure and with recreation, they were oblivious and apathetic to the plight of the poor and the powerless who were exploited by the rich and the powerful. Justice was perverted. Immorality was common and it was socially acceptable. But the people were very religious, but... Though they were very religious, they only gave lip service to God while they twisted the truth about God to match their own liking. And they also worshipped other gods. Last week in chapters 4 through 6, we noted that Amos preached five sermons. And as we went through those, we saw that God stripped away any objections that the people of Israel might have had about why God couldn't or wouldn't bring judgment upon them for their sin. And now as we come here to chapter 7, there are two questions that could arise from everything that's happened thus far. I've called it this morning the deliberation because the questions are this. What will the people of Israel do in light of all that God has said, and then what will God do? And here in chapter 7, Amos really answers those questions in reverse order, beginning with, what will God do? And and as he begins, Amos Amos records for us here in chapter 7 three visions which God gave him, uh, whether it was after the things of chapter 1 through 6 or concurrently and during his time of ministry in chapter 1 through 6. What will God do? Let's just, let me just read verses 1 through 3. 
This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, He was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. What he's saying here is that God prepares to send judgment on the nation of Israel. And the judgment will be locusts, a horde, a swarm of locusts that will cover the land. It doesn't mean much to us today in America. I, don't, I doubt that any of us perhaps have ever seen a swarm of locusts, a plague of locusts. But in a very short time, they can completely strip a land of vegetation. And Amos, if you recall, he was a rancher and a farmer. He was well aware of just how a massive locust plague that would cover all of the land and at such a critical time, he says here at the latter mowing, when it's time for the harvest that provides the food that all of the people will eat, he understands just how devastating this would be. It would wipe out the people through famine and wipe them out in utter misery. And so Amos, it says here, he intercedes. He prays on behalf of the people before God. He appeals to God's mercy and he says, God, please forgive. God, be merciful and forgive. And we know from the Scripture that God is a merciful God. He also appeals to God's pity, His love. He says, He, Jacob, Another word for the people of Israel, another name because Jacob's name became Israel. He says, Jacob is so small. Israel acts so proud and acts so big, but Amos knows that they are weak and they are vulnerable. And he recognizes this would be totally devastating. And, and God relents, it says. The plague does not occur. Amos has another vision, beginning in verse 4. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Again, we see that God is preparing to bring judgment on the land of Israel. And this time, it's a judgment of fire. Our TV screens have been filled this week with images of wildfires in Canada. If you've seen any of the images, any of the film, the movies, it's, they're awesome and frightening scenes there. I understand that the fire has covered some 930 square miles. That's huge. But this one that Amos is describing here in, in this second vision is a, a fire that would cover over 5,000 square miles. And that is so severe that 
it says here it is actually destroying the, the earth. Again, it, it brings total devastation. And so again, Amos intercedes. He prays on behalf of Israel. And again, we see that God relents and says, all right, and the fire does not occur. Several observations as we just look at these first two visions. First thing that I want to notice is that God prepares judgment. He prepares to judge. And that is not a popular thought today. Popular thought today, what a lot of people want to think about God is they want to see God as kind of a mushy Santa Claus. Someone who's full of jolly and good cheer, who's full of warm fuzzies. And I have heard, as probably you have over the years, people who would say, I just can't believe in a God who would condemn people to hell. I just can't believe in a God who will judge people. May I say that God has revealed Himself and He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures and God has made it very clear that He is a God who will judge sin. As a matter of fact, righteousness, holiness, justice, goodness all demand that sin be punished. If sin is not punished, there is no righteousness. If sin is not punished, there is no justice. If sin is not punished, there is no goodness. If God does not judge sin, then He is neither a good nor a holy God. God must judge sin. And so, God prepares to judge, send judgment even on His people, the people of Israel, because of their sin. A second thing to note is that God relents. God withholds, He suspends, He at least temporarily stops His judgment. Please understand, as we you read that, it may raise questions. You may wonder, wait a minute. You may wonder, is God wishy-washy? Is God indecisive? He really doesn't can't decide what to do or doesn't know what to do. Is God in, unthinking? Or is God impulsive? He just, I'm going to wipe them out. Oh, no, please, God, don't. Well, maybe not. Let's see. Oh, well, okay, I, I won't do it. That's not at all what this is saying. Nor is this saying that God is not omniscient. Now, omniscient means, to be omniscient means that God knows everything. This is not saying that God does not know everything. It is not saying that He doesn't know ahead of time what will happen, nor that He doesn't know ahead of time what He will do. That's not what this is saying. But God is communicating something to us through this. Even as it says that God relents, that He 
as it was, as it appears, he changes his mind. What God is communicating is notice what comes between God prepares judgment and God relents. What comes between? Amos intercedes. What God is communicating to us is that twice it is the prayers of this backwoods shepherd that rescues the nation. And we could spend an awful lot of time in deep discussion and in debate about this this phrase that's repeated twice here, the Lord relented. And we could wonder about what does it mean that the Lord relented or He changes His mind in this. There is... Let me just put it this way. There, there really is mystery and there is tension between how God sovereignly controls everything, every molecule in this universe, how God is unchanging in His nature, how God is holy in His will and He has divine purposes that will not be thwarted how all of that is true and yet it relates to human responsibility and to human prayer. All of that sits in, from our perspective, they sit in tension and it is mystery in how they fit together. And we could spend lots of time talking about it, and, but we don't have time this morning. And the reality, even if we did, I could never solve it for us. I could never answer the question. But Scripture is clear that all of these things are true. There's a marvelous and inescapable clear reality that is pictured here for us that we need to grasp. And it can be summed up in these two words. Prayer matters. Prayer Matters. Amos's prayers make a difference. Your prayer, my prayer, as people of God, our prayers make a difference. The Apostle James makes that clear as he writes in, in the little letter of James, James chapter 5 at the end of the book, where he, he talks about how the fervent prayer, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And he talks about how Elijah was a man like us, but he prayed and God did great things. And he's saying, likewise, God will do great things through your prayers. See, the reality is that God is sovereign and God knows everything that's going to happen, but yet somehow He chooses to allow and to use your faithfulness and my faithfulness in prayer to affect His sovereign actions. That's a lot of words to chew on. But it goes back to prayer matters. And Amos is genuinely affected by his concern for these people. And so he goes before God and these people whom do not, they don't treat him well, and we'll see that a little bit later. And yet he goes before God because he truly cares for these people. And he pleads, oh Lord God, 
He's emotionally moved. You can read it in His words. And I can't help but contrast him to the prophet we looked at just a few weeks ago with Jonah, the hard-hearted prophet who could care less about the Ninevites. And here is Amos weeping before God for the, the Israelites and saying, Oh Lord, please forgive. And I wonder, do you, do I, do we care for messed up sinners? Do we agonize over the fate of people who are about to get what they deserve? People who may offend us, who may malign us or hurt us or oppress us, or people we just don't like. Do we ever agonize over them? Amos does. He prays for them. There's a quick lesson for us. I have to divert here for just a moment. The prophet Samuel has some amazing words that he says back in 1 Samuel chapter 12. The people of Israel have just, they've just rejected him. They've stepped all over his feelings. They have ignored all of the sacrifice and the care and the labor that he's put into the people of Israel. And, uh, then he says this, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. He says, if I don't pray for you, I'm sinning against God. So God forbid that I would do that. See, we have a duty to pray for others. You may have never thought of that before. You may say, wait a minute. You can't take that from Samuel. I mean, Samuel is a prophet and I'm not a prophet of God. Interestingly, if you look in the New Testament about what God says about us as believers in Jesus Christ, you find, and we've noted this in many times over the last few months, that God has called us and given to us a wonderful position in Jesus Christ. He has poured so many blessings upon us. One of the things that you'll read when you get over to 1 Peter and chapter 2 and verse 9, it says that we are a royal priesthood. You go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, and in verse 6 it says this, he, Jesus, God, God, or God through Christ, has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve His God and Father. You'll recall we, two, two weeks ago, I think it was, maybe three, as we looked at Amos, we talked about one of the problems with the people of Israel was that they had taken their position, God had, had called them into uh, he had chosen them. He had, he had adopted them into His family. He had given them an elevated position as His people. And they had turned a position, this position into a position of privilege where they're like, we're God's people. We're good. You know, everything's cool. God loves us. We're special. And they had missed the fact that God had called them not to a position of, of privilege, but to a position of responsibility. And so it is with you and me. 
See, God has called us to be a royal priesthood and a kingdom of priests. But let me ask you, what does a priest do? A priest goes to God on behalf of others. So what that title is, what that position is, is it is a position of responsibility. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has given to you a privilege and a responsibility to be a priest. To go to God on behalf of others. Well, who are we to go to God on behalf of? Let me just show you a few scriptures. I'm sure you can find more. Here's one, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. Who are we to pray for? First word there is everyone. Who does that leave out? Nobody. <laughs> we got a long prayer list. There's seven billion people on the planet. Well, we got to get started. Okay, maybe we don't have to pray for every person, but we need to be praying for everyone. And then specifically, he goes on, and for kings and for all those in authority. We need to be praying for our leaders. Do you often act as a priest and take your leaders before the throne and not you know, God, please take out the king. God, please take out the, the president, the congress. the what? No, but praying for them. Agonizing like Amos over their eternal soul. Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, Be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I may will fearlessly make known the gospel, the mystery of the gospel for which he goes on, I am an ambassador in chains. See, he first of all says, be praying for all the saints. That would include, as Pastor Aaron has urged us, to be praying for our young people, our teenagers, our children, to be praying for their parents, to be praying for the brothers and sisters who are sitting around you in church to be praying for that uh, difficult person that's two pews back and one pew over and or whatever, or maybe they're one pew up and three. Do you pray for all the believers? And then Paul says, pray for me. Who was Paul to them? He was their missionary. He was that person who was working and serving on their behalf as a partner in the ministry of the Gospel around the world. And so we also ought to be praying for those with whom we partner to share the Word of Christ around the world. We need to be praying for our missionaries. I hope you stay up with the emails or you go down and get the prayer letters from the hallway down there and, and that you pray for our missionaries, those with whom we partner. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 9, verse 38 and 37. He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into His harvest field. Jesus says, pray. 
pray for lost people that God would send workers to share the Gospel. It ought to move us. It ought to break our hearts and we ought to be like Amos and be pleading before the throne of God for the three and a half billion people who live on this planet apart from any witness of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Much less those who live where there is a witness of Jesus Christ, but they simply haven't heard or haven't been listening. Do we pray for unbelievers? You see, as priests, these are just a few of whom we ought to be praying for. Let us live up to our calling as priests and be intercessors. People of prayer. It's convicting, isn't it? Thirdly, the third vision we find in verse 7, 7 through 9. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. I will never pass by them, never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. What will God do? God is going to use a plumb line. My dad was a carpenter. I learned at an early age about what a plumb line was. A very simple tool that provides a perfectly straight and perpendicular line so that builders can build straight walls. Perhaps Italy's most famous landmark, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Now, you might say, well, apparently they needed a plumb line. Well, the, the real problem was that it was built on a poor foundation. And so it began leaning. I don't really have time to tell you all of the history of the tower. But they knew from early on that there was a problem. It's a fascinating story over the hundreds of years that it took to finish this tower. Bottom line is this. Pisa is on the map simply because their tower leans. Every year since 1272, the angle of the leaning of this tower has increased slightly. And sooner or later, everything that leans gets to a point of no return where it's going to fall. By 1990, the people of Pisa knew they had a real problem. They closed the tower. The tower was on the verge of collapse. The best engineering minds got busy. The people of the town knew if they straightened the tower out, it ends the attraction to Pisa. So they devised a way to straighten it more <laughs> to a safer angle and to stabilize it where they say it really won't be a problem again, well, at least for 200 years. See, there's a problem with a structure that's not plumb, that leans. It's unstable and eventually it must come down. 
And here in the vision, God pulls out a plumb line. He's standing next to a wall that it says was built with a plumb line. The, the wall is the nation, the people of Israel. And God is saying that when, when I built this nation, when I built this people, it was plumb, it was straight. And now God says, I'm setting this plumb line in the midst of my people. I'm setting this plumb line next to the wall and we're going to check to see it was built straight, but what is it now? Plumb line is there to check the current status against the plumb line. And the plumb line is God's perfect standard, which is revealed in God's perfect word. And then God says, I will never pass by them again. That doesn't mean that God is simply going to ignore his people and never go over there and look at them again. The point is that God will never bypass them again. He will never go around them and say, I relent, that judgment won't come. That's what he's saying. Parents, we get this. God is saying that there's no more excuses, there's no more chances, and in the way we do it as parents, it's like this. That's one, two, and the unwritten rule is when you get to three, the hammer falls, right? And that's what God is saying here. It, there's been three. No more. The plumb line is there. If the wall is shown to be crooked, it's coming down. And how does Israel stand up to the standard? God says it's too late. The nation is too far gone. It's leaned too far. Judgment is inevitable. This wall is coming down. What will God do? God now is going to bring judgment. What will Israel do? In light of all of these things, what's going to happen? Amos has been preaching and Amos has just finished sharing this last vision with the people. And we find what happens in the, the next verse, verse 10. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam the king of Israel saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. Thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from the land. Amaziah is the priest of Bethel, the chief place of worship there. He's the, the, he's the head priest. He is Israel's chief religious leader. He sends a report to the king of Israel, Jeroboam, and it's got some obvious bias and misrepresentations in there. He says, Amos says. He doesn't say, God says. He doesn't even say, Amos says, God says. He just says, well, there's this guy, Amos. Kind of wacko guy, and he's saying some stuff. And he goes on, Amos is conspiring, he's starting a conspiracy, he's a, a traitor, he's a spy from the south. And he says, the things he's saying are dangerous and destructive. The land can't bear his words. This guy has to be stopped. And he twists what Amos has said about the house of Jeroboam and turns it to a personal threat against him. He says, Jeroboam shall die by the sword. That's not what Amos or God said. And then Amaziah turns to Amos in verse 12 and gives the results of what he and the king thinks need to happen. Verse 12, And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, Go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it's the temple of the kingdom. 
this is supposed to be a safe place and you're not making it safe. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, well, we get it. Before I get that, he's, Amaziah has threatened Amos. And he says, you seer, he uses the word seer, which can be used synonymous with prophet, but he uses it sarcastically. He's basically calling Amos a fortune teller, a carnival act. And he says, go back to Judah, go back to the south where you belong. You're in the north here. You're out of place, southerner. Get out of town. Go there and earn your bread. And he's saying, earn your bread, do your prophesying there. What he's not so subtly saying is, you're in this for the money. Go down south and do this for money. You're a prophet for profit. And he says, don't speak here again. Get out of town. Amos responds. Amos says, verse 14, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. But I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. He has a word for Amaziah. Amaziah says, shut up and get lost. And that's the official response of, of Israel. And Amos responds, first of all, he says, God sent me. <laughs> I wasn't a prophet. I'm not a professional guy. I never went to prophet school. That's what he says when he says a son of the prophet. I'm not a prophet's son. I didn't go to seminary. I was just a shepherd, a rancher. I took care of sycamore fig trees. I was a farmer. And the only reason I'm here is because God said, go to the north and preach a message that I have. I'm sure Amos was saying, I'd rather not be here, trust me. But here I am. Then he turns and he basically turns to Amaziah and says, you personally are telling me to leave town. God has a personal word for you. Verse 16, you say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord to you, your wife will be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land will be divided up with a measuring line and you yourself will die in an unclean land. And Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Amos is saying, don't doubt God. Let me tell you, the cost is going to be high to you as well. When you go off into captivity, your wife is going to become a prostitute. Your kids will be killed. You, Your land will be measured up and sold or given away. And you are going to be hauled off and you're going to die in a foreign, unclean land. And certainly what God has said will happen. Israel will go into exile. There's a third question as I wrap it up this morning. What will God do? What will Israel do? What will we do? What, what real difference does this make to us today? If God brings out the plumb line of His Word, if He would do that today and stick it next to the wall of your life, what would it show? I can tell you this much. 
What it will reveal is every flaw in the wall of your life. And there will be many. The Bible calls those flaws sin. And there are two big issues that come up with sin that's in your life and in my life. Two big issues. The first is the consequences of sin after this life. When life ends, sin has consequences. And the second issue that comes up is the consequences of sin in this life. We might typically think of those in reverse order, but I'm going to deal with them in that order this morning. The consequences of sin after this life. If God brings that plumb line in and He shows you for what you really are and everything that's there in your life, it's going to show that there's sin and failure in your life. There's a problem with that. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. It's hell. Sin earns us something. Your sin has earned you hell. And make no mistake, what the, what the Scripture says is that God must judge sin and He will judge sin. And the consequences are eternal and they're horrific. But Romans 6.23 goes on and it says this, the wages of sin is death, it's hell, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank God there's some good news. God in His great mercy has provided a way out. Jesus came and took the punishment that we deserve for our sin and He took that upon Himself so that any who will put their trust in Him will be saved and have everlasting life, as John 3.16 says. And that's the good news. If you're here this morning and you've never understood that before or never heard that before, that you can know that there is a just and holy God, but in His mercy He has provided payment for your sin. And He asks you, He invites you this morning to trust Jesus as your Savior. Right where you sit, you can just tell God, yes, I believe. I need a Savior. I trust Jesus. This plumb line not only reveals the problems, it shows the solutions. God's Word shows the solution to the eternal consequences of sin and also to this problem, to this the consequences of sin in this life. See, sin in this life has big consequences too. And we know it. The price tags of sin in this life are broken relationships, broken hearts, broken marriages, broken families, broken people. The consequences of sin are pain and their anguish and their guilt and their fear and their addiction and their debts and prison. And we could go on for the rest of the day and talk about the consequences of sin. and We see them in other people's lives and we see them in our own life. And this plumb line of God's Word not only reveals the problem of sin, again, we find here the solution. 
See, some people look at the Word of God, they look at the Bible and they see what the Bible says and they say, the Bible is a book that is full of horrible commands, of awesome burden, burdensome things that we have to follow for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and what you find is David writes in Psalm 19, your words are life. Your words bring joy to my heart. Why? Because you see, what we have here is not burdensome commands, but words for how to build a wall, a life that is a wall that is straight and true and plumb. One that doesn't fall over and crash. See, God loves us so much, He doesn't want us to live with the consequences of of living in sin. He doesn't want us to live with broken relationships and broken marriages and with guilt and with pain and with heartbreak and these things. And so he says, folks, here's how to live. More than that, when we look in the Bible, what we find is when we trust in Christ, not only do we know what to do, but the reality is that humanly we can't do it. But the Bible says when we trust in Christ, God puts His Spirit within us and we have the power of the Spirit of God working with us to produce in us the righteousness of Scripture. The, the rightness that builds a good wall. And God will, in His grace, take the brokenness and the twists and the leans of our walls and begin to straighten them out. There's the good news this morning. We can build our lives according to the thoughts, our own thoughts and desires, according to the pattern of the world and society, and we'll end up with a life that looks like the leaning tower of pizza. Or pizza, take pizza, take your pick. Or we can build our life according to God's word, and we'll avoid much pain and gain much blessing. Israel refused to listen to God's word and repent, to change directions. And I guess I just ask as we end this morning, what are you doing with God's Word? Let's pray. Father, I trust that not a person leaves this morning. I hope not a person here leaves without knowing and understanding Your grace through Christ to give them a Savior from sin and from the consequences eternally of sin. And may they trust in Christ. And then, Lord, may not any of us leave here this morning running away from or ignoring the goodness of Your Word, which teaches us how to live rightly now for our good and as well for Your glory. Father, may we learn from Israel's example what not to do. And may we listen to You. This I ask in Jesus' name.